Support for this podcast is brought to you by Hippocamp 2017, a conference for creative nonfiction writers. It's this weekend, as in September 8th through the 10th. What are you waiting for? A riff? Is it a riff? It's a riff, isn't it? So here's the deal. Good old Hippocamp sponsored the Creative Nonfiction Podcast again, but I didn't run that snazzy new ad because this week's bonus episode is with Hippocampus Magazine and Hippocamp founder Donna Tallarico, at Donna Tallarico on Twitter. Give her a follow now. I will wait. Maybe I should mention that this is the podcast where I speak with the world's best artists about creating works of nonfiction. Leaders from the world of journalism, essay, memoir, radio, and documentary film, where I try to tease out their stories and tricks of the trade so that you can apply those skills to your own work. Donna brings such a great entrepreneurial sensibility to this episode, so if you want to organize your independent nonfiction career, or start a magazine, or start a conference, this is your episode, your time to let your freak flag fly. I'm on my second cup of cold brew and I'm pretty fired up, so I'm going to come out and ask that you kindly leave a review on iTunes, like this nice five-star gainer from Hannah in L.A., quote, Great interviews that provide useful nuggets and inspiration for writers and other creatives, end quote. Thank you for that slam dunk. If you leave one, maybe you too will get a similar shout-out. The biggest endorsement the show can get is these reviews, but also sharing it amongst your friends who like to dabble in this kind of work. That also is a huge endorsement, and I deeply appreciate it. We're two minutes into this intro. You know what? Let's do the show. I'm I'm thinking that every podcast naturally has to start with the question of, how does one begin to teach Faith Hill how to do the hokey pokey? I was promotion director at a country radio station back in Northeast Pennsylvania, and there was an after party after after the conference. Now, this was, I believe, in 2000 or 2000. No, it might have even still been the late 90s. This was before she exploded into popularity. So she was still playing at a relatively small theater in in Wilkesbury. So the record reps and the radio station staff, we went to the hotel across the square and we were just hanging out and I can't dance. <laughs> so I always try to request funny songs so I can still get up on the dance floor, but if I look silly, it's okay because it's a silly song. So I had requested the hokey pokey. Now, I think I was only 22 or 23 at the time, so I was much younger um, and a little more bold. But at the same time, Faith Hill had come down from her hotel room, and she was just kind of in casual clothes, almost pajamas. And she said, the hokey pokey, I don't think I've ever heard of that before. When the song came on, we all went up, and I stood next to Faith Hill, and I was showing her the movements, how to put the right hand in, put the right hand out. Um, you know, and turn about and do the hokey pokey. So it was really fun. She had asked for, you know, hey, no pictures, please. And this was the day before social media. So there really isn't much out there that kind of says, hey, this happened. But um, my college roommate at the time did take some pictures. So I do have a couple of pictures of it. 
Oh, very nice. Very nice. Yeah, I remember like towards the in the mid to late mid to late nineties when like just before she was getting big, like I remember just like my friends and I, we would have like CMT on in the background. We just like loved that video of like, hey baby, let's go to Vegas. And we were just like, wow, it's like this is this is some good stuff. And then then yeah, she took off. So maybe we can we can thank you. The hokey pokey sent uh, exploded her into stardom. I I think it did. I think it made her comfortable to just be who she is and to be fun. And I'll take responsibility for that. <laughs> My goodness. Well, congratulations. The title of this podcast will be How Donatella Rico Propelled Faith Hill to Superstardom. That's awesome. <laughs> so, as I like to, uh, I always love to get a, a sense of where where writers uh, come from, in a sense of when and where did they start to fall in love with language and reading and books. And uh, I'd extend that to you. Like, when did when did when did the switch go on for you that you just you know you loved stories and then you wanted to be a creator of those stories? I think for me, one of my first memories of learning that words can be fun. And I think that's what it's all about. You know, I just think that you put letters together to form words that form sentences, that form stories. And when I was a kid, I kind of stumbled upon wordplay or maybe puns. Um, I moved from, I guess, outside the Philadelphia area, the Philadelphia suburbs as a kid to the Poconos which is a region in Northeast Pennsylvania. It's very mountainous. It used to be considered the honeymoon capital of the world. And I don't know if I remember this or if my mom told me about it. And so now it feels like a memory, but I was sitting between my parents in the van, you know, before days where you needed car seats, you could just kind of walk around a van as it was driving. But I kept touching my nose and I kept going Poconos, Poconos, Poconos. <laughs> <laughs> so that really wasn't a memory of wanting to be a writer, but I think that's my earliest memory to know, Hey, you can play with words. You can put them together and you can have some fun with them. Huh. And what did your parents do for, for a living? Well, the reason we were moving to the Poconos was they were entertainers. Um, this was my mom's second husband who had adopted me. That's where I got the Tellerico name from. Mm -hmm. And she was a disc jockey, like a mobile disc jockey who set up her, in her turntables and her records. And Tony Tellerico, my adoptive father was a singer songwriter and he would play guitar, just his, you know, acoustic guitar. Um, and we moved to the Poconos because they wanted to play campgrounds, honeymoon resorts, music festivals. So I spent a lot of time in a as a kid in, in a van, just driving around with entertainers. And uh, what did that do for you creatively? How did that, uh, you know, that experience and those uh, inform the, your own creativity as you were growing up? I think traveling so much and being around new people and new surroundings all the time opened me up to just having this curiosity. I mean, maybe, and I was, maybe I was born with curiosity, but it really instilled that in me to ask questions, to learn more about these people, the places I'm going, just discovering new places, little nooks and crannies of the world, learning that everybody has a story. Um, you know, I was never afraid to talk to strangers as a kid. I always wanted to learn about people. And I think that just in, just that ability to always ask questions and be open with people kind of 
you know, my, my first love was I wanted to get into journalism, not necessarily write creatively. So I think just always being exposed to new people and new surroundings was the first, was how I developed that love of curiosity and answering questions. Was there a particular journalist or uh, writer that you were clued into early on, maybe as you were in middle school and high school that really made that sunk, sunk their teeth into you and, uh, you know, you wouldn't let you go, so to speak? You know, I don't know if there was any one writer or one journalist that really sparked my love of it. What I will say is that the first books I really remember getting into were uh, the Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys super mysteries. And again, that just that love of finding the story, chasing that story, figuring things out. And then I, you know, I didn't, gosh, this is such a hard question because it's really forcing me to go back and, and think. But I, I think maybe it might have even been talk show hosts like Oprah just asking people questions and getting them to open up. You know, she might have had some impact on me, but I can't remember a specific person, time or place where I said, hey, this is what I want to do. It just felt like it was always there. I just always wanted to ask questions and tell stories and, and interview people. Uh, where do you think you got that knack to want to like ask the, you know, or maybe even a love or a, or a hunt for maybe kind of that perfect question, the one that gets people talking and uh, speaking in stories? Like, how did you develop that skill? I think, you know, and this even goes back to recently, just, you know, working in higher education or other companies where we had student interns and where they would have to interview somebody. And they would just come up with a list of questions that would say, how old are you? Where are you from? You know, and just all those basic questions that you could go out and you could find that by finding their bio, by, you know, doing a little bit of research. So I always wanted to dig a little deeper, you know, get out the shovel and ask people questions that they haven't been asked before, you know, just to get get that person, that interview subject, thinking about things that maybe they hadn't thought about in a long time. Kind of like how you just asked me which journalist inspired me. And it was, you know, hard for me to come up with that answer right away because you asked me something different, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. What does that that look like to you? Like if you're what? You know, how does that research kind of manifest itself? Like when you when you're doing this kind of work or or you know preparing to interview someone, are you 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 might come up with some questions and be like, okay, that the fact that that came to me so early probably means that everyone's going to answer uh, ask that question. So like, how what does that look like for you to go deeper at that point? You know, what how do you yeah how do you come up with that set of questions? I think interviewing somebody, the most important, you know, you learn about the five W's in journalism and the H, the how. And I think where, what gets to the heart of the story is the why. Mm. And I think sometimes people are just so used to answering the surface questions or used to ask, used to asking the surface questions. But I think when we frame the conversation around why, we get out those motivations, those kind of those hopes and, and dreams and the deeper stuff, the more personal stuff, when we kind of go behind why all this matters, why do you do this? So I think the question of why, you know, especially for a, a human interest story really matters. You know, of course, if it's a hard news story, you know, you, you really do want the facts. And But I think when you're trying to tell a deeper story, asking those why questions. 
Yeah, yeah, of course. And they're hard to sometimes they're hard to ask because they can sound judgmental sometimes. Like you'd be like, "Okay, you did this. Well, why do you do that?" Or so it might be it, it's it's a challenge to maybe like uh, buff that question a little bit so it doesn't sound judgy, but you actually want to get to the to the heart of uh, an answer and and it, and ultimately that leads to maybe what's conflicting about a particular subject and then you know, that conflict obviously is what makes for a great narrative. Yeah, yeah, I I completely agree and you know sometimes it is harder and and not everybody will want to open up, you know, so it really becomes a relationship between you know between the two people or the multiple people that are part of the conversation to just, you know, trust each other and and want to open up and sometimes that's hard. You know, one of the um my classes in undergrad, we had to do oral histories. And my uh, professor, Andrea France, you know, the way she explained oral histories is you could go in there and maybe spend a half hour or an hour with the subject. But what you're capturing is that person's life in that particular day, their that particular mindset. You know, maybe they had a rough night the night before and their answers are really short not as deep. Whereas if you had interviewed them on a different day, the story could be completely different. So sometimes it's not even a matter of the questions you ask. It's, it's a matter of just that time and place. It's just so interesting how a story can change based on who's telling it when they're telling it. How long do you think it might've taken you to get comfortable asking questions that would be, that can be very probing? I think I'm still getting used to it. I think, you know, every new interview subject is different. And sometimes I feel more comfortable than others. You know, sometimes I can be intimidated by somebody I'm interviewing. You know, right now I'm working on a feature story for an alumni magazine of a business school. And I'm talking to some I mean, I don't want to say they're not famous people, but they're like high profile people that are really successful in their fields. And then sometimes I think, do I have a right to be asking them about this business concept or or that? Um, So I think I'm still getting comfortable with the idea of doing it. And I just take each one one step at a time. Mm. That's tough because you want to you want to ask good questions, but sometimes the best question makes you feel kind of stupid to be asking it in the first place. But I I think that ultimately that comes from a place of confidence that you're willing to be like, Hey, you know, let me know. I, you know, you're, you're the expert. I'm just the, the conduit. So yeah. Enlighten us and, and everything. But yeah, that's great. Like a, you skirt, you like got to a good point there. Like how do you deal with maybe a little of that performance anxiety that might creep in when you're trying to talk to someone who might be high profile or even interview someone who's, yeah, who's got that big, big spotlight on them and, and you have them for an X amount of time. And yeah, how do you navigate the anxiety that might go into talking to someone of that high profile? Yeah, that's a good question. I think what I do is just try to try to remind myself that we're both people, we're both humans who have the a lot of the same needs and wants and I might be the peon reporter that's interviewing somebody that's done something really remarkable. But then I think about situations where they're just their normal person. And I might be in a situation where I might be the remarkable one. So when I see us both as just common people, 
that both have a job to do, that really helps me, you know, just get into that mindset that, you know, that reminds me that, hey, I'm a professional trusted to do this job by an editor or by somebody. And this person agreed to speak to me because they want to share their story. So I think that really helps. And then also just no matter how anxious I might be inside, also just putting on my game face that, you know, hey, even if my hands might be trembling, you know, um, they don't have to see that, you know, and I can hide that. When you were starting to develop and even consider this kind of work as a vocation, at what point did you feel comfortable giving yourself permission to pursue what you're doing? Yeah, that's a good question, too. I um, I actually never worked full-time as a journalist. I was always uh, an independent features writer or on the news side, a stringer that covered meetings, you know, school board meetings, um, municipal meetings. So I think because I because I was always so curious and had these questions, I would pitch stories to newspapers and magazines that interested me. And because I was fascinated by a topic and what I might find, I knew that readers might too. So I think because I had such good success with pitching my stories and usually at a local level, I mean, that's where most of my experience is, is local and regional papers. But I think that instilled the confidence in me that, hey, they like these ideas, they're letting me run with them. So I definitely think that helped boost my confidence for both writing and throughout the rest of my career that, hey, I have good ideas, these stories matter, my ideas matter, I can do something with them. How do you cultivate or um, curate ideas? And then how does your, your querying and pitch process manifest out of that? So I keep a bunch of... Well, going back a long time ago, I have a shoebox that I used to just put ideas in. This is back even when I worked in radio, when I had to come up with promotion ideas. So I would always be coming up with business ideas or story ideas or ideas for a contest. And it might be on a bar napkin. It might be on the back of somebody's business card. So I threw them all in this shoebox that I have. But it was funny because you know, there was the term thinking outside the box. So I have a big label on this shoe box that says, I think outside the box, but I do need a box to put them in. (laughs) So it was just like, I even would joke with myself on this box that nobody has ever even seen inside. Um, So today, how I keep my ideas, um, you know, they're still on scrap papers everywhere, but I put them in a folder. And Um, And then sometimes when I'm really ambitious, I add them to a spreadsheet of story ideas. And the spreadsheet has different tabs. So there's some ideas that I have that are in progress that I might put notes in. I use a browser extension called Pocket, where I save articles that might be good sources for some of the ideas that I have just to keep them organized so I can find them again. And then as far as the pitching process goes for on the journalism reporting side, I have a spreadsheet that says the idea that I pitched, who I pitched it to, the editor's contact information, and then I track all the follow-ups that I did. And then eventually I'll go through and fill in, um, I'll either highlight it green that it was a go or red that it was turned down, or I gray it out if I didn't hear back. Hmm. And do you, uh, do you have a process of, okay, I've got this idea. 
I could like, all right, my dream pitch is like, oh, right, I like, I can see this in the New Yorker. There's my home run swing. And then, and then from there, okay, maybe if they say no, you go here, 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 here until eventually you're at, you're at, you're at the bottom where either you're going to pitch it to some like very local place, maybe a place for free, or do you just kill it all together? Like, how does that work out, work itself out? Yeah, I think that that's a great question. And I think a lot of freelance writers struggle with that too. You know, I have a dream publication. Okay, it got turned down there. Here's the next tier that I want to hit. And eventually, you know, if you're really passionate about an idea, you don't want it to just die. So I see a lot of people will, um, you know, publish it on Medium and or their own blog just so the story gets out there. And I'm completely still okay with publishing places that do not pay or pay, you know, a, a smaller fee if it's important to me to get the story out there. I, you know, there's just, the landscape is changing and there's a lot of great venues out there that just don't have the budget to pay what freelancers used to make, you know, when a dollar, $2 a word was the standard. Um, it's just changing so much. So sometimes we just have to make peace with the idea that we're not going to get top dollar for every freelance article that we write. And how comfortable are you doing a, a piece on spec if you really like it and you're having a hard time getting someone to buy it on query alone? Like, Have you had an experience where you just go forward? You're like, I'm going to just pursue the story, write it, and then try to sell the, the whole thing? a couple articles on spec and they were usually the ones that I was really passionate about. They were stories that didn't really require a lot of outside research. So if it was something like an op-ed piece or something that was more of a first person account, I would feel pretty comfortable writing that on spec. I don't do that as much lately. Um, a lot of my freelance work today has been on the content writing side of things where I'm working with agencies. Um, but when I really do feel passionate about a story, I sometimes do write it on spec and we'll send it to places. And you were alluding to it earlier that you know, be, freelancing, the landscape being what it is, that the money isn't, isn't great. And even if you do get paid something, the, the amount of sort of self-employment and taxes you have to pay out, out of it, like just, it just kills you. So it's what, like, what can people do to supplement that? Um, I, I think, I, I often think that there's a, a temerity to share that, you know, sometimes you need side work to help subsidize the work you really like to do. Uh, people don't want to talk about that. They just want to Set, like uh, maybe put up a facade that it's the freelancing that is 100% supporting, but you know they might have a job at a bookstore to help, help so, or, or wait tables. And I I wonder what uh, what your experience is like um, trying to subsidize your writing and then see uh, where your work sort of falls on that continuum of you know day job versus you know the work that you really want to be doing. Yeah, that's a great observation. I think a lot of people who decide to leave their full-time career type jobs, you know, your typical nine to five jobs um, who want to leave to freelance full-time will find that it does take a while to build up a client base and to build up regular income. And I think it's really important that you have to treat your freelance business like a business. 
you know, so I have spreadsheets, I have, you know, project and income reports that I do to project what I think I might come in. I have income goals. Um, so I, I try to run it like a, a, a true business. And I, I left my full-time job in 2014 to focus on my own creative writing and to put a little more time into Hippocampus magazine. But through all this, my own writing has suffered a little bit because the freelancing really did take off. And I should add that I keep using the term freelancing because it's what most people know it as, but I try not to say it myself because I think there's this stigma around it, you know, so I call myself an independent writer and marketing consultant, you know, just it may be a matter of semantics, but there's so many people that are struggling out there with, um, you know, and I'm sure you've heard of them, the content farms or people that just think they can hire a freelancer for a couple bucks. So I think just by changing how I refer to myself kind of just elevates it a little bit. So I would encourage anybody that's listening that calls themselves a freelancer to maybe just try calling themselves an independent writer, independent content writer. So to get back to your question, I do, most of my income, like I said, isn't on the creative writing side. It's with content marketing. So I use some of my skills from when I worked in higher ed to help other colleges and universities, sometimes directly with the client, sometimes through a, you know, like a, an ad agency to work with content. So that's where most of the income comes in. But where the fun projects come in are the crazy ideas I have, like, I want to learn more about pajamas. Maybe I'll send that idea to mental floss and, and learn about like why we have nightcaps and why we wore dressing gowns and things. So those kind of feed my soul. So I would recommend any freelancer or independent writer to diversify, mm -hmm. to have some, you know, larger clients where you you're paid a little more. It might not be the prettiest, most fun work, but it does make a difference. And then fill in the gaps with some of the journalism stuff or, or writing for news websites or different blogs. So at what point in your writing career, did you start to gravitate towards, you know, essays and, you know, that type of creative nonfiction that would ultimately sort of inform the work that you did while founding Hippocampus? And we'll get into the logistics of wh why and when you founded that. But I want to get a sense of where you were as a as a person and as an artist as you transitioned into that. But. So where were you? Like, how did you started to gravitate towards the type of writing that you feature in Hippocampus? I had mentioned earlier that I worked as a radio promotions director. And I took when I took that job, I dropped out of college. I was a communications major. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm, I got offered a full-time job at a radio station. I had been working there part-time since high school. So I thought, I don't need to go to college. I already have my radio job. So I didn't actually finish... Uh, college until I was almost, uh, you know, I was in my late 20s. So then in my early 30s, that's when I went into the MFA program, because I, I really liked the journalism stuff. I was working as a freelance reporter for a local paper and for a local alternative weekly. But I think it was kind of the oral history project that we did. And that was just one project. But I just really like the idea of people having a story to tell. And so I think I more seriously considered writing creatively. You know, I always had ideas for movies and for novels, but I, you know, I wasn't serious about it. So I applied to grad school and I was going to go to, I was accepted to the new school 
for social research to get a master's in media studies or sociology of the media. And then I just made a last minute change because my alma mater was starting an MFA program and I just decided to stick a little closer to home and do that. At first I thought I would do fiction, but it was a low residency MFA program. And during your first project semester, you pick two genres and I did fiction and creative nonfiction. And as it turned out, my um, instructor I worked with for the nonfiction side of things said, you have some interesting stories here about your, your family. And I don't think I realized my upbringing was that different or that unique, but it was really through discovery and these just writing prompts and simple assignments, you know, that said, wow, I, I might have something here. So I switched to nonfiction and, you know, about a year later is when I founded Hippocampus. So it was kind of, you know, I always wanted to tell stories, but I wanted to tell other people's stories, not realizing I had one on my own of my own until it came out what were what do you remember what those prompts were and then what those prompts prompted from your memory yeah you know one of them was one of the prompts was write about a kitchen of your childhood i struggled with that one because i didn't have a kitchen of my childhood i had about 15 kitchens of my childhood and I think that's when I realized that, wow, I kind of had, you know, a non-traditional upbringing. I was in a van a lot. We were, my mom got divorced again and we moved from house after house after house. And it just kind of all hit me at once when I realized I don't, I don't have a home. Like in college, when people say, are you going home for the holidays? You know, it just really hit me. Oh my God, I don't have a home. Mm. And to this day, I don't want to be a homeowner because I feel I just want to rent. I don't want to be tied to something. So I think this notion of moving so much really affected me and a lot of my philosophies on life and about roots. And it really didn't hit me until that assignment, right about a kitchen of your childhood. So I did end up picking writing about um, my dado's uh in Italian, a lot of times they say, I'm Dado. And this was my adopted father's father. And his kitchen had wallpaper and it had like names of pasta in cursive writing. And so I ended up writing about that kitchen because even though I moved so much with my mom, I always went back to this kitchen and, you know, to this family that, you know, adopted me as one of their own, even though I wasn't a blood relative. And mm -hmm that becomes a theme in my writing too, that, you know, I think I don't have a home, but here I kind of had one all along, but it was with people and I'm going to cry during this interview now, <laughs> but it's, yeah. Well, I, I think the, the kitchens of your youth or the kitchens of my youth would be a great title for an essay. If you haven't already done that already. <laughs> no, no, I haven't, but I have plenty to write about. <laughs> <laughs> and so, You've alluded to this uh, this idea of this entrepreneurial nature that I think has been somewhat Im embedded in the the work you've done because you, then you've you know uh, the of being an independent creator and content creator writer and having these spreadsheets and everything you do see yourself as uh, as Susan Orlean says like you are you are the raw material but also the producer of the raw material so it's like you're 
the same you're the you're the coin in both sides of that coin and then you obviously you founded hippocampus magazine too so there's an entrepreneurial side to that so what did that look like when you were trying to start that and uh how did you get the idea and what made you say i'm gonna found my own creative nonfiction magazine between my um work in higher education and i I worked in e-commerce for a little while but between the time that I left college and then went back, I worked as an admissions representative for a career college, um, which is, you know, a, a kind of a, a group of schools that might offer programs in the trades or medical field, you know, people that want to be a skilled worker but don't necessarily need to go to traditional college. So I find my, found myself working as an admissions representative there and being really good at it. And I wanted to capture people's stories. And I don't talk about this a lot because this was before I really knew self-publishing versus traditional publishing. But I put together an essay collection called Kids, Have You Seen My Backpack? And I put out a, a call and I collected a bunch of stories of adult learners who went back to school. So this was in 2005. And so I kind of always had this idea I wanted to bring stories together and tell them in some way. And while the heart of those stories are fantastic, I definitely had a lot to learn about putting together, you know, work. So that was kind of like my false start. You know, I, I did something that I thought was really great. Um, but those days at this, that, that school, I was trying to, you know, basically it was a sales job and I was telling everybody, Hey, you need to go back to school. You need to improve your life, blah, blah, blah. And here I was a college dropout. So that's kind of when I went back, but that was the Mm. first time I knew I might have a knack for bringing people together and producing content. So that kind of idea always kind of stayed with me. And then when I got into the MFA program, I didn't want to tell people, Oh, I, you know, self-published a book of other people's essays one time. So I kind of, but that's out there. That's in my history. So during the MFA program, um, once I decided to do nonfiction, you know, just like in any writing program or even workshops that you attend, people encourage you to send your your work out there into the world, um, either to get it published or to get feedback and just know if there's an audience for it. And at the time, I should say now I was working for an e-commerce company. So I was developing online marketing skills, web skills, you know, all of these things were growing with me. And when I decided or when I found that there weren't a lot of online magazines yet that were really high quality that focused on nonfiction, of course, there are plenty of print magazines and online magazines that focus on everything. But as far as being strictly nonfiction, strictly online, Brevity was really the only one making waves at the time. And they've been around for 20 years. You know, Dinty was on a previous podcast. So, you know, I thought, well, maybe there's a home for another one um, that focuses on longer nonfiction. I came up with it during an in-class exercise um, where we had to come up with, we could pick from like a couple different projects. So we didn't actually have to create the magazine. We just had to come up with an idea for it. And I worked with two other women um, who are, are still close friends today. And we came up with um, a nonfiction magazine and I thought of the name Hippocampus, but we went with another name for our in-class project. But I thought, I, I'm registering this domain name. I'm going to do something with Hippocampus magazine one day. So it was about a year later that I really got serious about launching the idea. What were the logical steps to getting it from the 
perfect idea you had in your head to something published? You know, what were what did that look like and how did how did you go about sequencing that so you had something that you could publish every month starting in 2011? I knew, and this goes back to my country radio days, but we had a bunch of file folders that were um, for each letter of the alphabet, and we called it show prep material. So some of it was, you know, live, what was happening in the news, but we had file folders for information about all of the country artists. And in the Kenny Chesney fold, a section of the folder, there was a, a country weekly article that talked about uh, Kenny Chesney had and he might have got this quote from somebody else, so I don't know the origins of it. But Kenny Chesney had been around for a long time. He had like five, six, maybe even seven CDs out before he became really famous. So he said in an interview, take off like a rocket, fizzle like a rocket. And that always stuck with me, to not want to rush and do something and I do see a lot of young online magazines that get really ambitious and because it's very easy to create a website today that they just they'll throw up a website and say we're we're uh, open for submissions and then they'll get all their social media handles and set up everything. But they don't have a strategic plan. They don't have short, long term goals. So I think that's what I did differently. I treated it like a business from the beginning. So I announced that we were coming out into the world six months before we did. So we had plenty of time to build everything right and to get submissions and to already have, you know, submissions for a couple months of content, you know, and that's, again, I might be getting ahead of the, um, our conversation, but that's why I didn't launch the conference right away. That's why we didn't launch the books all at once because we had to grow slowly and smartly. How did you develop that kind of, patience to let it grow slowly and even have the confidence to do the work and and wait for it to get that critical mass or to gain the traction that gave you the confidence that you could keep going yeah i think it's just about having patience and and hope hmm. but really it's just about being organized and creating a solid foundation and i think I definitely think working for the e-commerce department, I worked in the corporate marketing department um, by the time I, I left that company. So I learned a lot about project management. I learned a lot about, you know, SWOT analysis. And, you know, so I really just learned about the strategy behind things and that if you want to do something, sometimes you need to start, you know, a whole year in advance and, and work backwards from your launch date or whatever it may be. So I think... I am so grateful that I had the opportunity to work for a technology company that really was big into project management and milestones. And so that helped give that helped teach me the right way to launch something, whether it's a product, whether it's a magazine, whether it's a whether it's a book. It, it, did you set certain um, parameters on yourself? Like if we don't hit sort of this mark by a certain time, then maybe it's not going to happen and we should you know, pull up anchor and move on to something else? I don't know that I said any, anything like that. I had goals of where we wanted to be. And for some things, I sort of have a contingency plan, you know, um, also working in the communications field, you always want to prepare for a crisis or if something goes wrong. 
so for the online magazine, I really, you know, don't have plans for that. But, you know, a, a couple of weeks before Hippocamp last year, Mary Carr was our keynote speaker, and I had a dream that she broke her leg. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, oh, my goodness. So, okay, if something does happen to a keynote speaker, if something does happen with this, what are we going to do? So I think if you always think about the what ifs, if a what if happens, you're going to be more calm and you're going to be prepared for that to happen. So I think any if you're planning an event, if you're planning a launch, whatever you're planning, you do need to know what you're going to do in those scenarios and maybe have next steps in case something like that happens. I also think working in higher education helped with that because it's so sad to say, but we have to have emergency management plans. And I went through some training on that. You know, if there's an active shooter on campus, if there's a weather event, you know, what do we do? We already have some messaging already set up that we can tweak, but that way we don't have to think as much about it when it happens because we've already done some of the work. That high level kind of thing that you might not think about for a literary magazine, it's just kind of embedded in me. What do you think some struggling writers that who have talent are might be getting wrong in terms of you know trying to get that that critical foothold that allows them to make maybe make a living and make a go of it as a writer hmm i don't see this in everybody but i see a lot of people that are overconfident so believing in yourself you need to, you need to believe in yourself. But I think there comes a point where you can be, you think you're too big, like maybe you're too big for your britches already. You know, I see a lot of people that will submit stories to literary magazines, or maybe on, you know, the freelance writing side, submit pitches to editors of um, like commercial magazines. And they just, they don't know the, they don't have necessarily a professional approach or maybe they think their story is great, but they didn't take the time to workshop it or get a second opinion. Um, you know, if we show our work to our spouses, to our parents, to our best friends, to our grandma, they're going to tell us we're the best writer ever. But so I see a lot of people that don't get critical feedback and don't know how to take that critical feedback um, to heart. They get offended easily when somebody says, oh, you might be doing this wrong or you, you could do this a little better. So I think. I guess what I'm getting at is you need to be open to critique and you need to be open to trying things a different way. So I think that's the biggest mistake I see is people sending things out that aren't ready. I still do it. Um, you know, things that aren't ready. And then the case of when you're pitching stories to say, you know, like um, a good housekeeping magazine or something like that just not having the tact and the professional communication just because email is quick doesn't mean you, you you don't have to be professional in in how you approach somebody so i think communication skills are really important so i think the better you can communicate an idea but also be cordial i think that helps too and communicating ideas in and and community is kind of what leads us into hippocamp and at what point during the Hippocampus magazine uh, journey did you say, okay, at, at, I'm go I want to start a conference? Uh, at what point did that come into your mind? Yeah, I think it was probably maybe 2012 
I've always loved conferences. Back in high school, I was in high school in Oklahoma for a couple of years, and I wrote for the school paper, and it was called the, um, we, we uh, submitted awards or our stories for awards to the Oklahoma Interscholastic Press Association, or OWEPA. Um, so the one year I got to go to, I think it was OSU or OU, I forget which one it was, but it was a high school journalism conference. And one, I fell in love with being on a college campus. But two, I just, it was my first exposure to meeting other people that did the same thing. And then fast forward to when I worked for the e-commerce company, we had a conference for our clients where they came in and learned about our products. And um, so I was involved with that. And then my first conference that really hit me was called um, High Ed Web. It's short for Higher Education Web Professionals. And they do a fantastic job with making a really fun conference but one that's also so informative, so innovative and cutting edge. And I just fell in love with the conference, with the people, with the how it was arranged. And by this time, I had been to some writing conferences that weren't as exciting. So I thought, you know, I want to do something like this for Hippocamp or for Hippocampus. And then I thought, and we have the perfect name because we have camp built into our name. Mm. So we call it Hippocamp. Um, but I thought we, I don't want to jump into it just yet. We're still the new kid on the block. So I kind of wrote it down as like a, a three-year goal. Let, let's just do this in a couple of years from now. So what were the, the next steps and logistical plans and the sequence to actually coordinating booking and getting a conference from the, the idea to something that's people are, are going to pay, they're going to attend, they're going to travel. Like, how did you, how did, what were those logical steps to get this thing from idea to actual hippocamp? The first thing we had to do was think about our programming and our format. You know, what do we want this to look like? And then once you figure that out, then you know what kind of space you need. Because if we just wanted to do a one day event with a couple speakers, you know, we could do that at just like a, like a local meeting space. But if we wanted to have a bigger conference with say a keynote, um, a couple breakout sessions where people can go to different rooms, you know, that affects where you, where you go. And then that in turn affects what your budget's going to be. So you kind of have to figure that out. And then, you know, so we priced around different places, you know, geography, where do you want to hold your conference? So for us, I considered the idea of it being a traveling conference where we went somewhere different each year. But then I thought, even though we're an online magazine, um, we're in a pretty cool city that, you know, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, that I'd love to see more people visit. So maybe we can bring our online magazine to life and build a sense of place because we call Lancaster home. Maybe we can do it here. So then it was about finding the right venue in Lancaster. And then you figure out what your expenses are going to be. And then that's kind of then how you price your ticket. And I'll be honest right now that, you know, maybe by year four, this will be, you know, revenue generator. But right now we're just interested in covering our expenses. So that's kind of where we're at now. So you have to, if someone is planning a conference, you have to work that into your ticket price. So if you do want to make X amount of money from this, you know, this is what the costs are. This is what, you know, the other expenses might be. So it, it kind of works it down to 
you kind of have to do some math. <laughs> your first hippocamp, you were able to book Lee Gutkind as your keynote. So what did that look like? How were you able to court the Godfather to be the keynote to the first annual hippocamp? <laughs> well, that's a secret. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think when, when you're working with a certain level of speaker, you have to you go through a speaker's bureau sometimes. So that's what we do for most of our um, our headlining speakers. Um, not all the time, but that's generally what most conferences have to do. And there's a lot of um, speakers agencies out there that work specifically with uh, literary rock stars. So there's some really great options out there for that. And then for our other speakers, it was really important to me to have well-known speakers, but more importantly, it was for me to have everyday writers also getting to share their stuff. So the bulk of our content at the conference is done by attendees for attendees. So we put out a call for submissions for proposals for breakout sessions. And we try to even invite people that aren't from the literary community, but people from the marketing world, from, you know, maybe life coaches to come and help us you know, know how to better balance our time or how to better market our stuff, our stuff, because I think sometimes we have to reach beyond our industry to learn. Like, for example, in higher ed, there's a woman, Georgie Cohen. I went to a session she did about college news websites. And when she built the new website for the college she worked at at the, the time, she didn't look at other college news websites because they weren't doing them right. So she looked to NPR, to, to Fast Company, to I forget exactly which websites, but she looked outside the industry and did something really amazing. So that's what I try to do with Hippocamp, with Hippocampus in general, is bring what I learned from other industries into what I do. And I think it makes a difference. How validating was it for you, like just in, in year one, to get Lee and then year two, Mary Carr, and now year three, to Tobias Wolf. Like, that's got to say something to you that you're doing something that's valuable and has a ton of merit. Yeah, it makes it hard to think about your number four now. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, I think, I think you're so right. I mean, with each year, with each speaker we have, it just, you know, and I will say, even if you have to go through a speaker's bureau, they still have to believe in your event and believe in you and want to be there and want to travel to it and be a part of it. So it means so much to me and to our attendees that these amazing writers and teachers have said, yes, I'll come to Hippocamp. Mary Carr was so amazing last year. She answered questions longer than she needed to. She came out from behind the podium and talked to people and, you know, and then when it came time to look for a speaker this year, you know, um, we went with uh, Tobias Wolf and we also do a, a, an attendee survey and we do ask for input of who would you like to see speak at the event. So we take reader input, or I'm sorry, not reader input, attendee input into the decision we make as well. So Mary Carr and Tobias Wolf were names that came up after after year one and two that helped us form year two and three. How would you characterize where you were from say like hippocamp one to the third one and like what what's changed what what improvements have you made and how have you you know just whittled it down to something that's you know just that gets better and better uh each time in the first year you know i worked on conference committees before so i knew 
some things you needed to consider about the logistics, you know, of, of conferences and how far out you should do certain things and, you know, marketing plans, you know, so I had a sense of some of those things, but I never planned Hippocamp before. I never worked with booking so many writers and, you know, and, and all of that. So the first year we learned as we went, but I recorded and tracked everything that we did. So that way we had a framework for year two and for year three. After year one, we took all of our speaker evaluations, the conference surveys, we took all of that into consideration and made a couple changes for year two. And then we did the same thing from last year to this year. So I think listening to your audience is so important, you know, and it's not just about what's on the surveys, but it's about looking around the room, seeing how people are reacting to certain things. So it's a mix of the qualitative and quantitative that, that you look at when you make changes. And sometimes you don't need to make any changes because things went over really well and you just do them again. You don't change things just to change things. You yeah. keep doing the things that work well and you change things that need improvement. But because the more you do something, your audience will come to expect certain things. So you can't shock them the following year by not by doing something completely different, if that makes sense. Yeah. When people, you know, want to like say start a business or something like a great place to start is like scratching your own itch like what is something you really like that you're not seeing and do that and others will probably follow and i wonder how did hippocamp scratch your own itch and what were you looking for in a conference and how did you manifest that in your own vision i developed and formatted hippocamp the way I did was because I saw, again, I, I think I tried to fill a gap. There's a lot of different types of writing events you could go to. And I recently was um, able to share my thoughts on writing conferences on a post on, on Brevity um, earlier this month. And sometimes there are workshop environments where it's a really small group and you're doing a lot of, you know, workshopping, hence the name together and and writing and getting things done and then there are really large events like awp that are just panel after panel and so many topics and so many people and so many voices so i kind of wanted to do something that had a lot of great voices but in a smaller environment and i think the biggest thing that i wanted was to have solo presenters i am not the biggest fan in the world of panels there are some really great panels out there, but I think we can do better um, with how we moderate them and how, um, you know, and how they're conducted. Because when you have a captive audience, I, I really think sometimes just having a solo presenter up there focusing on one topic and, and what they're good at really lights up a room sometimes more than just a panel. And, and we have panels at Hippocamp, and I, I do enjoy panels, but I wanted I wanted to do something different, and that's why... I personally, that's what I personally love, and I think it really works well for Hippocamp. And there have been some people at Hippocamp that work with other conferences, and I won't, I won't say the name, I don't feel comfortable, but one other conference now added solo presenters instead of just panels to their lineup, because I think it does bring a certain energy. And I would love, you know, Hippocamp is a small conference, it only has about 200 people, but if seeing more events like this popping up in the writing world happens, I'd be really pleased. 
Hmm. Is is there anything else you'd like to add with respect to your third annual Hippocamp? Hashtag Hippocamp17. Yeah, well, depending on when this is, is running, I mean, obviously it'll be archived, so people will be hearing this after the event, but if you're listening to this before September 7th, there might be space available. So please sign up if you're relatively close geographically and have the weekend free but if not follow along with the with the hashtag and you know and maybe consider coming next year it's just so awesome to create something and then see people come to it and talk about it and tell somebody else and the same thing i mean if you write an article if you write a book write a song you know just to see somebody enjoying the content i mean that's that's what it's all about i mean we all have to make a living somehow um, you know, at this point, I mean, I'm investing into hippocampus. I'm mm-hmm. still at, at that phase. And one day maybe, you know, it, it, the goal is for it to be, um, a revenue generating business, but until then I'm just putting my heart into it. Yeah. Well, it, your time is worth it. Like you should, you know, get to a point where you can make, make uh, a living, make some money off of it because you're investing so much in it. It's like what Penny Lane, the documentary filmmaker I spoke to a few weeks ago, you know, at one point she was, Saying like, oh, do it? Should I just like undercut myself? And then she was like, no, fuck that! Like, my time is yeah. valuable. Like, I should get paid for the work I'm doing. It's good work. And so, like, yeah. so I think there's, uh, yeah, there's nothing, nothing wrong with that, especially given the trajectory you've set Hippocamp on. That I, I hope, I hope it c- continues indefinitely, and that you're handsomely paid for it <laughs> for oh, your work. So that's the goal. And I, I joke with some people now. I mean. You know, I, I I talk about how people have, um, you know, that go to certain churches and have their um, their paychecks like tithing. I joke that Hippocampus is my church, and mo- like my <laughs> part of my income goes to rent, to the car payment, to my student loan, and to Hippocampus. <laughs> but it won't always be that way. Awesome, Donna. You feel good about this? Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Thanks again to Hippocamp for supporting this week's episode of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. And thanks to Donna for her time. I had a blast and I hope you did too. Did you know that I have a monthly newsletter? The beauty of it, it only comes out once a month, 12 times a year. In it, you'll find my reading recommendations for the month and what you may have missed from the podcast. That is it. No spam ever. Head over to my website, brendanomera.com, to subscribe. You know what? And ping me on Twitter while you're at it, at Brendan O'Mara, to say hello. I will say hello back. Here's a fist bump from me to you. See you next time.